So before we get started, would you pray with me and ask God to really speak to us this morning? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these opportunities that you afford to us. Thank you for the people in this room and the cafe and listening online. God, we just pray that your spirit just continues this incredible work of forming us into the people that you have called us to be, that in the people that you have invited us to be through your son. And we pray this in your name this morning. In your name, amen. On May the 25th, 2020, we all had front row seats to the death of Mr. George Floyd. In my lifetime, I cannot recall such a swift and global response to what we witnessed that day. In a matter of days, millions of people poured into the streets all over the world, filled with rage and disgust and frustration. For most of us watching that video, it was incredibly difficult. Many felt it was an unnecessary use of force. It was a visible picture of systemic racism. It was a perfect object lesson of prejudices at play. Whatever your thoughts were, whatever my thoughts were, one of the chief reasons why this event brought such a quick and swift response is because police are supposed to be the ones that serve and protect. They're supposed to enforce and uphold the law. They're supposed to be the very best of us as human beings. Witnessing this event called into question the goodness of the individuals who were involved that particular day. One of the responses to Mr. Floyd's death was a movement that suggested that we don't need police, that we'd be better off without them. And this whole phrase of defund the police became a real hashtag. If we've heard it once, I suspect we've heard it a thousand times. For some, they got what they wanted. On June 8th, following Mr. Floyd's death, there was a police-free zone that was established in the city of Seattle. This was called the Autonomous Zone. It was intended to be life in this utopian way. The mayor of the city said that this zone could herald a new way of life, a summer of love, so to speak. One of the participants on day three says, it's absolutely astonishing. There's a food co-op, there's a medical center with actual doctors from around the city that are volunteering. There are classes, there are lectures, there are speakers, there is poetry, there's live music, there's huge works of art. It's really beautiful. 21 days later, this self-governing zone had to be displaced. Why? There were two murders. There were four gunshot victims. There were several stolen cars. There was rape and harassment, and there was gang violence. How does a new utopian community, a self-governing zone, a summer of love that is supposed to herald a new way of life not last 24 days? Well, the answer, no one is good. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> when we hear this phrase, we as people want to push back to this idea that there's something wrong with the human condition. Thus far in this series, we've talked about issues of identity and where we get our sense of self. We've talked about sex. We talked about gender last week and how that matters from a kingdom of heaven perspective. And this morning, we're going to work through this idea and challenge the notion in our culture that humans are inherently good. Because Jesus would say something very, very differently, and it's on full display everywhere we look. And just to kind of help further the case for this, we're going to examine some structures and some persons that clearly highlight that there's some merit to this phrase that no one is good. And we'll start with the church. Like if there is an organization that is quote unquote supposed to be good, 
it really should be the church. Like, you should find the inherent goodness present in a people who gather to worship God to celebrate all of his goodness. Well, if you know anything about church history at all, it doesn't take long to find that there are significant problems in church life. Over the summer months here, we were again brought to deal with all kinds of realities connected to the indigenous atrocities that were done years ago and continue to unfold in many ways. Late last week, there was, again, more news stories of sex scandals involving ministers and minors. There's abuse upon abuse upon abuse. There's charitable contribution scandals on top of scandals over the years. Inside the very organization that is supposed to be good, you will find that it's not so good. If you looked at politics and that system and structure, there's really not, like, where do you want to start? Like, you could pick one of a hundred things. Sports and athletics, Olympics, from the young right on through to the old. People will stop at nothing to win. Everything from state-sponsored doping practices to individuals who will just cheat the system, figure out the way to read the rule book in a way that I can exploit and manipulate all to win the game. I remember a dialogue a few years ago that some of the reasons why there are so many issues at play in structures is that men were often the ones that were leading them. And there was a real movement to bring women into that space of CEO and headship and all those kinds of things, which is good on a whole bunch of levels. But the argument was that maybe some of these issues would disappear, that the harassment would disappear, and some of the ways that the office was the abusive environments, and then all of a sudden you have situations like Julie Payette. Like the highest civil office that you could hold in the land. The very same things that happen when men lead happen when women lead. No one is good. No one is good. As a Christ follower, we are told this by Jesus through his word time and time again. Jesus is the one who informs us in Romans chapter 3 through Paul's work where he says, there is no one good, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, as a pastor, I will admittedly say there are passages of Scripture that when you read them, you're like, I don't know what that's really trying to say. This is not one of them. This is not one of them. Like, like what, what does it mean, no one? Like, that means no one. Like, like, all of us? Yes, all of us. No one is good, not even one. No one understands. No one is good. Jesus, again, through the prophet Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jesus, through David, the king in the Old Testament, in a psalm where he writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Why is David asking God to have mercy on him? Because David recognizes that I am sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. As a Christ follower who lives inside the kingdom of heaven, inside the kingdom of God, while I take my lead from Jesus Christ, I come to discover very quickly that no one is good, not even one. And to understand why Jesus can say this about the human race is that we look at what happened in the Garden of Eden. A few moments ago, Dana and team led us in a song that kind of this longing to go back to the Garden, this place when it all went awry. It's here in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 where we discover that human beings, men and women, decided to choose to walk away from God. They decided to live life their own way. 
they decided to disobey God to become their own king and their own queen. They decided that they knew what was best for them. They disobeyed and walked away, and this is a tragic and awful moment in human history. Jesus speaks to this moment in Romans chapter 5, again through Paul, and he describes it this way. He says, sin entered the world through one man. This is referencing back to Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. And because sin entered the world through this one particular man, Adam and Eve, and then death enters as well through sin, and because of this, death will come to all people. Death will come to all people. This is why Jesus says that no one is good. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve make the decision to walk away from God, there is a fracturing that happens at a soul level of the human being that begins to make itself felt and known in Adam and Eve's lives right down to their children, hence Cain and Abel. Like, you don't have to go very far to see awful sin unfold where there's murder between two brothers. And at this moment in Genesis 3, as God kind of describes what unfolds in the human race, from that moment on to every generation that follows, right down to you and I, you and I, we are born with a fracturing of a soul, which is the base level as to why Jesus can say no one is good. And God, out of love, to help you and I see this dynamic of our lives, he gives us the law. This is Moses in the Old Testament. And he gives the law which highlights, which is the motivation behind it, was given so that we would see the problem that we all struggle with. Jesus speaks to this problem in, in Paul's words in Romans 7, where he says this, I do not understand what I do, and I bet you you could put your life right in this place. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do this I keep on doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I suspect everybody in this room can understand this dynamic. We want to do what is good. We want to do what is right. We want to move in this direction, but there's something else at work in us that almost compels us to do the opposite. This is the remnant of Genesis 3, this law of sin at work in us. Although I know what I want to do, I know what I should do, I know what I ought to do, and yet there's something inside of me that keeps me from moving in that direction, and then it's filled with regret, because like, how did I do this again? How did I say the same thing again? How did I act the same way again when this isn't what I want to do? This isn't what I want to say. This is the law of sin at work in you, and which is the premise and foundation as to why Jesus can say, no one is good, not even one. And we see this on display every single day. For those of you who have young children, this is why your children will break the good, simple house rules you establish in your home. And when you as a parent, when you ask, why did you do that? And they're like, hmm, like that, hmm, that's Romans 7. That is the, I don't know why I did this. I know the rules that you have asked me to do. But there's something at work in them that compels them to do the opposite. And often these are linked to very simple, obvious things that they don't want to do, and yet they find themselves doing it. This is the evil that is right there with them. 
This is why teenagers are involved in this whole new phenomenon right now called devious flicks. They know that vandalism is wrong. They know that stealing things is wrong. And yet, they'll go to school, steal something from the bathroom because that's the latest challenge. This is the evil that is present right there with them in their lives. This is why adults have affairs and break promises and steal from their employers. This is why they choose harm in a myriad of ways that leads to suffering in their own life and the lives of others, because evil is right there with them. It's why we have news stories like the Pandora Papers, and if you're unfamiliar with this story, this broke about two weeks ago. This is people who railed against tax evasion, the very wealthy and the very rich political leaders that said, we shouldn't do this, we should all pay our fair share in taxes, and then, surprise, you weren't doing this all along. This is the evil that is right there with them. This is why a prime minister can champion truth and reconciliation and skip out on its first day, because evil is right there with them. No one is good, and not even one. And this idea that no one is good, listen, this runs directly against the cultural narrative that says, follow your heart. Jesus, if he's a part of this and sees this on Instagram, like the whole follow your heart foolishness, he'd be like, please, please don't follow your heart. It just leads to ruin and death. Please do not follow your heart. That whole phrase of let your conscience be your guide, again, Jesus would be like, please, please, heavens, don't do this. Please do not follow your conscience. The whole idea of do what makes you happy, believe in yourself, all of these phrases, Jesus would plead with you, please don't do this. Because at a deep level of your soul, it's fractured. All these phrases, all these things assume that humans are inherently good and that we have better angels at work in us and that the human being can't truly be led astray if we would just listen to our heart and listen to our conscience. Like there's no harm that would ever come to us if we would just tap into this deep level. It assumes inherent goodness of the human being. When getting ready for this morning, it's curious, um, week one, we talked about identity, and I'm like, oh, man, like, I know that there are some who are really going to find that difficult to hear. And then uh, two weeks ago, we talked about sex, and as I'm getting ready for that sermon, I give it to some friends of mine that are really close, and I trust their judgment, and I'm like, man, some people are going to really find that difficult to hear, and it's going to be offensive, and it's going to be bothersome, blah, blah, blah. And then last week, we worked about gender and all that conversation, and what's curious is this conversation is really offensive to everybody. Like, no one is good. No one is good. And yet we'll walk away from here, many, like, I don't know, you know, whatever, it's, it's fine. Because we refuse to acknowledge this idea that no one is good, that we will go back to this conversation to say, no, 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 human beings are inherently good. Now, if I may, I have no idea how one can argue this. Because it's based on nothing. We live in a day, more than ever before, the science says. The evidence says that human beings are not inherently good. It ignores everything that we have watched in human history, which Jesus clearly understood about human beings, even in his own life in John 2, at the very end of the second chapter. Jesus, it says, he would not entrust himself to the people because he understood and knew what was in the people. He would not lateral over what he was about to human beings because he understood who they truly were. So he kept it to himself and he went about his business because it was going to go sideways if he entrusted all that he was about to the human being. 
And according to Jesus, this all begins in Genesis chapter 3. It all happens in the fall. And it's been carrying forward from one generation to the next ever since. Jesus himself, and I'm all in on who Jesus is. There is no such thing as the inherent goodness of a human being. To a culture that doesn't follow Christ or acknowledge him, which is to really kind of speak to the vast majority of people in the West and around the world, the problems of evil in the world, they believe this idea that it can be solved or decreased or muted through one of these three things. Our world's response or our culture's response to evil is further education or better wages to eliminate poverty or just flat out excuses in our life. And very quickly this morning, I want to work through these three things because you can probably hear yourself in it because I can certainly hear mine. The whole conversation of further education, we see this everywhere to solve sexual harassment in the workplace, to solve racial prejudices, to solve the bullying of marginalized community, to create inclusive spaces. You'll hear the phrases of seminars, training, classes, education. Seminars, training, classes, education. During the federal election, during the live televised debate, there's a moment where Blanchette and NMA Paul go back and forth talking about issues of systemic racism. And NMA Paul says to him, I will educate you on this. As though somehow the education of this is going to somehow stop and prevent that activity and behavior and thought from happening. We believe as a culture that we can train and seminar and educate and, and learn our way out of racism. Listen, I am all for information. I'm all for informed decisions. I'm all for education. But I know this. A person cannot solve the evil that is right there with them problem through the external treatment called more education. Some of the worst evils in human history have come at the hands of people who are deeply and highly educated. The second one of better wages, again, this is everywhere. This language is particularly through political landscape as we move towards elections. When someone's asked, like, how are you going to solve crime rates? How are you going to solve that? How are you going to fix this? How are you going to do this? It's often linked to employment. If we can get people to get a better job or make more money, then some of these issues wouldn't unfold that some of these things would just dissolve in our environment, that we wouldn't have to deal with these kinds of conflicts or these kinds of prejudices or these kinds of, of issues. And again, I'm all for work. I'm all for the value that work brings. I'm all for the dignity in our work because these are very much kingdom of heaven values. But I know this. A person cannot solve the evil that is right there in us problem with external treatment called more money and better jobs. Again, some of the worst evils that have ever happened in human history have come from the hands of people who were incredibly wealthy, who had the very best jobs. Excuses, and this one will sting a little bit, I, I promise, this will sting. It's kind of like when the doctor's like, the needle's going to hurt, this is going to hurt a little bit, because this is all of us. Unlike any time in my life, and I'm aware that I'm, I'm 43, so I'm in this weird, like, I'm not 20 but I'm not my dad's age either. Like, I'm kind of in this in-between part of life. But, but unlike any time in my life, people are being told, ultimately, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And what's sad about it is that people believe this now. 
It's this space of when we act and we do, we have the ability to explain away the why and push it on to someone else as though it's their fault, not really mine. In the school system, I see this all the time. I, I coach over here at East Wilshire, so I deal with kind of parents on a regular basis. Parents now, it's weird because I did not grow up in this environment. Parents now automatically assume that their kids are innocent. When I grew up at school, my parents automatically assumed that I was guilty, <laughs> even if I was innocent. Like, I would come home from school, and like, we got a call from your teacher today, and I'm like, let me speak. Nope, go to your room. Like, I don't want to hear it. Like, just go to your room, because the teacher was right, kind of, in my life. Now, there's some issues with that, I understand. However, we have gone so far the other way, because I deal with parents, and they'll say, well, my, ch my child would never. And I'm like, oh, yes, they would, and they did. <laughs> yes, they would, and they did. And said parent wants to explain away why. Oh, but you don't understand what they're going through. You're right, I might not understand what they're going through. But it doesn't let anyone off the hook from what it is that they've done. And we excuse away much of our evil, much of our decisions, because of all of these things that are happening around us. Parents, if I can, you're not helping your kids if you believe the lie that your kids could never. Your kids are more than capable. They're more than capable. And when it happens, you will be devastated because for the first time in your life, when your kids are 9, 12, 16, 18, for the first time in your life, you will be confronted with something that as a parent you've just missed the mark on for your entire life. This idea that there's evil present in your children, in my children. And I see it every single day that I live. And it's not just a younger generation thing. I work with people all the time in my life. And in my own life, never mind people, if you give me a, a window of five to seven minutes of just alone time and thinking, I can make my problem and my mistake your fault. Like, it doesn't take me long to figure out, oh, like that TV channel was left on by you. Um, you walked in, I'm watching a show I shouldn't watch. Well, it's your fault. You were watching this channel before me. I'm the innocent victim that just turned the TV on and I was just watching, it's your fault. There's a million ways in which I can take any circumstance and blame it on someone else. And I'm pretty good at it. I'm loud. I can talk over people. And I've gotten away with things through the course of my life simply because I'm deflecting the issue onto someone else's or someone else's fault for the very things that I've done in my life. In counseling sessions, I see this all the time. Well, you don't understand what it was like growing up in my home. My dad was this, and my mom was this, and I'm just kind of a victim. Yes, that's true. We are a victim of that. However, you're 40 now. You're 40 now. How long are we going to play that card before we really deal with the root issue of your life and that no one's good? Not even one. Much of our lives, much of our lives, we try to explain and excuse away our decisions. And I know this. You're never, ever, 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 ever going to solve the evil that is right there with you problem by always deflecting it onto someone else. You have to come to terms with, you have the ability to say and do awful things with no help of anybody else. There are moments in my life that I can look back and I'm like, oh my soul, in the right place at the right time, I am capable of awful things. And it's not anyone's fault. 
From the heart I speak. From the heart I act. From the heart I move. From the heart I will do all of these things. Before we continue on in this conversation, I want to have just one more thing with you about evil. There's a conversation in Genesis 4 that God has with Cain. This is after he's killed his brother. And God warns him. He says, evil is crouching at your door and it means to devour you. It means to destroy you. In time, if we're not careful, we don't even see evil as though it's evil anymore. It's just life. And the things that we thought we would never do when we were 9, 10, 11 years old, we'll do it 43, we'll do it 50, we'll do it 60, because we don't even bat an eye to it anymore. We've become so accustomed to just behavior and living that it's like, well, well, you know, that was naive and this is real life. We don't even bat an eye to the problem of evil anymore. It just becomes so ingrained in us And therein lies the great warning from God over his people to say, if you're not careful, evil will have a way with you to a point where you don't even recognize it anymore. And that is a very dangerous place for the human being to find themselves in. Now, for the person who wants to solve this problem of the evil that is right there in them, and for the person that follows Christ, I would invite you to listen closely. Jesus' response to evil is very simple. It's just trust and follow me. This first one, trust. This is the by faith thing, part one. A person must trust Jesus Christ. We must come to see him for who he says he is. That through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, he has solved the ultimate problem of evil in the world, both in the world and at a heart level in the human being. I've come to land fully on this passage in Colossians 2 where it says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in and through the cross. To say this another way, I have come to believe that Jesus is the antidote to the problem of sin. The problem of death, the problem of sin, the problem of the curse, the problem of evil is solved in Jesus himself. God the Father, as Jesus begins his ministry, says over his son, he says, this is my son. I am pleased with him. Listen to him. And we watch Jesus live his life on this earth. We see him go to the cross. And ironically, through the death of Jesus, the problem of death and evil and sin at work in the world is defeated in this moment. And I have come to the place where I trust him fully with my life. The response to evil from Christ is to simply say, trust me in all that I am doing in this world. Then there's follow. This is the by faith thing part two. Yes and amen that we have to trust Jesus by faith that he has defeated the problem of evil in this world. Yes and amen to his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. Yes and amen to the whole reality of forgiveness. Yes and amen to the new heart and the new spirit and being declared a child. Yes and amen to all of that. But now there is a second part to this, which is the I am to follow him, where this is the formation of our lives as we become someone different from where we are. I have grown up in church life. I've grown up in Baptist church life. And it's always confused me and it's been perplexing for me over the years that I have known people who have followed Jesus for years And they are literally the exact same person when they're 80. 
They're the same angry man, the same bitter woman, they're the same jaded this, the same frustrated that, and all of their language has never changed. And I know that in our world, particularly in church life, we have this kind of two-tier system of how we approach Jesus. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, describes one part to be this kind of like vampire Christian where I want just enough blood of Jesus that I get into heaven when I die, but I'm really not interested in being a person that submits my life to him while I'll follow him each and every day. Listen, I want to be very clear to you. There is no such thing of getting just enough to get in over there. That is foolishness and is nowhere in the text of Scripture. It is a, I must deny myself because I've come to trust Jesus to be who he said he is, that he is the divine son of God who has lived on this earth, who has died on the cross and was raised from the grave. And this glorious invitation of come and follow me. I'll bring you life. I'll bring you rest. I'll restore. I'll bring broken things back from the dead. I will do all of this, but it requires that you follow me. It requires that you deny yourself. Why? Because yourself, there's something fractured inside of you. Because evil is present outside of my door, and it means to devour me. And when I get up in the morning and I'm facing choices in my life, I cannot trust my own heart's disposition because it often leads me in the direct opposite way that Christ would invite me to follow. To be a son, to be a daughter of Christ requires a trust in who he is and I will follow him. We sing songs about this in hymns called Trust and Obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and follow or trust and obey. We sang a song a moment how we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. Why are we prone? Because there's something fractured in the soul of the human being. And we are so often easily entertained over here and it distracts us from the things that Jesus is inviting us into. And the very things that we're after as humans, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control, these things, these aren't actions that we do. These are things we become as Christ makes himself known in our lives as we put into practice by faith his word of instruction. No one is good, not even one. But there is this one person named Jesus. And in scriptural language, it says, I have acquired a righteousness that's not of my own. Why? Because I don't have a righteousness that is my own. I have acquired a righteousness, I've acquired a goodness that is from Christ himself. And he declares me good not because of me. Heaven's not because of me but because of Christ, the one who is perfect, the one who has lived, the one who died, the one who's been raised. He invites us in. My prayer for you this Thanksgiving is that you would land on the space that no one is good, that you would hear these words from Christ, not as this space of like condemnation, no one's good. It's just factual. Like no one's good and you're in need of help. And out of love, I've come into this world so that you might live and live to its full both here now as we live our lives and as we transition into the fully realized kingdom of heaven at his return or at our death. This morning, we get to celebrate some individuals who've made this decision. There's a whole crew of our teenagers that have come to a place where they're like, I, I trust Jesus and I want to follow him. 
And we're going to get ready for this incredible service of baptism here in a moment. So Dana and Tim are going to come back, and they're going to lead us in a song. I'm going to go get changed. This is the first time I've been in a baptism thing in a long time, because normally I was dry and they were all wet. So we're all going to get in this pool together. Not all at the same time, that's weird, but one at a time. <laughs> but as Dana comes, we're going to pray together as we kind of transition into this incredible celebration of people who've said, I'm not good. And I want to want to follow the one who is good, who is perfect, who has invited me into life and life to its full. Would you pray with me as we transition into this space of our Thanksgiving service? Our gracious and heavenly Father. I am never surprised by breaking news of something awful because I've landed in a deep conviction that no one is good and it's just time before it starts coming out. I live in a space and I want to grow in it every day that I trust you more and more and more and more and more and more. That I want to put a lot of distance between how I used to think, how I used to live, how I used to act by being transformed in every aspect of my life as I follow you by faith. That we trust you deeply to be the one that has solved the problem of sin and death in this world, that through your life and through your death and through your resurrection, that you broke the back of sin and death and evil and the curse. And that as we sign on and as we say yes to this invitation, that we begin with this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit that lives in our hearts now. That this tension of I know what I ought to do, but I can't carry it out, I now can because of your Spirit's activity in my life. And I walk in life each day for your goodness and glory. And we are so grateful that we get the chance to celebrate this here this morning with some young lives who it better be our collective prayer that as they're 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and a little bit older, that for the next 60 years of their life, they lean into you each and every day so that they would live and live well. In your name we pray. Amen.